Before we get started with today's podcast, I just want to let you know that I taped this while traveling and was not having to expect to tape a podcast on the terrifying role of concussions in the NFL. So uh, my audio on this one might not be as strong as I would normally like. Fortunately, the guest who was here to do all of the nattering rather than have me babble on about stuff for an hour their audio is fantastic, so I hope you'll stick around and listen to me sound a little bit like R2-D2, and then listen to our great conversation with Rachel Hearn. Welcome to a bonus edition of the Read Optional Podcast. We are taping this first thing on Friday morning. By now, you'll have seen the uh, disturbing scenes last night with Tua Tagovailoa playing in a Thursday night football game in Cincinnati after suffering what looked like to most objective people some kind of head injury on the Sunday that was then put down as a back injury. Um, throughout Friday, over the weekend into next week, as the NFL and the NFLPA complete their investigation to what happened in the Buffalo game. And then in Cincinnati on Thursday night, you'll hear all kinds of talk from people on a whole bunch of different networks about what's going on, failures in the protocols and that kind of thing. So I thought I would go and get someone who actually knows what they're talking about rather than just bloviating from the sidelines. So I'm happy, although the circumstances are awful, to welcome onto the podcast Rachel Hearn, who is an athletic trainer. And someone who is uh, right on the end of completing a PhD, I believe, in CT and traumatic brain injuries and the impact of um, active rehabilitation on CTE, which I, I know she would like me to point out from the top, is different from concussion itself, but still an athletic trainer and someone who uh, knows about all things TBI. So, Rachel, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so let's just begin, I think, just generally as I said, by now everyone will have seen both the situation with Tua Tugavailo. Will you just first walk us through what is the NFL's concussion protocol? That is what's going to come under the most duress um, from this incident, and that is what the NFLPA and the Players Association and the NFL are investigating is whether the protocol was properly adhered to. Can you just walk us through what the protocol is? Of course. So there's been a lot of changes, I would say, probably in the last decade when it comes to just concussion management and identification overall. Um, but the NFL kind of breaks theirs up into three pieces. So you've got your sideline survey, you've got your locker room exam, and then if a concussion is diagnosed, then you have what's called the return to play phase. So in the sideline survey, you're kind of just looking at the more obvious symptoms of concussion. So you'll look at some of that um, whether they have physical symptoms, whether they're kind of stumbling around on the fields, you've got your memory questions. Do you know where you are? Do you know what your name is? There might be a little bit of some physical screening, but it's more of a brief screening just to see if it's worth further investigating whether a concussion is there or if they think the player might be fine. If they decide that it's worth investigating more, they'll go into a locker room exam. Um, and this is where typically the athletic trainer, potentially the team physician will do what's called a SCAT assessment. So that's just a more um, defined um, checklist of things to go through um, with more detail. So detailing and actually reporting what the symptoms are, how severe the symptoms are, again, further memory test. Um, another part of this locker room exam is that neurological examination as well. And that's when we first kind of have that introduction into the independent um, investigator on the field. So those are the first two concussion identification. Then we can go into what the return to play phase is later on. So 
when Tua had the first injury in the Buffalo game, they announced that initially as a head injury, then they converted to saying it was a back injury. Now, everyone will have seen the video by now. I know you don't want to speculate on exactly what happened with, with Tua Tukavailo, and we're going to get onto the, that kind of speculation of it all in just a little bit, but the stumble is what has everyone's attention from that, right? That, that, that Something that even just as the generic football fan, you see, you go, oh, yeah, we've seen that now hundreds of times. That seems like a pretty clear, obvious case for concussion. Who is it who decides and what is the protocol to get you from the stumbling part to then saying we're going to do put them in the concussion protocol to evaluate that as opposed to what they did, which was back injury, which then means they don't have to actually go through the protocol leading into the Thursday night game. So there's multiple individuals that will be present on the game day that kind of collectively decide um, what the further decisions might be made, what the next steps might be for whatever injury is there. But at the end of the day, the team physician on game day has final say on what's going on. That actually differs from if someone goes through the concussion protocol um, and they go through that return to play phase, that actually is up to the independent neurological um, personnel that will decide that. But on the game day, when we're talking about injuries, it is the team physician makes the final call. Um, so they will have gone through some of those screening. And, and like you said, we noticed that stumbling that could be that gross motor instability that we see on the concussion uh, game day checklist from the NFL. And I think that's what everyone's really hanging on. Um, I'm curious to see what comes out of this investigation, how they've determined that that gross motor instability was from a back injury and not a concussion. But again, I don't want to speculate because I don't know everything else that's been going on around what other symptoms were there. It does look um, fishy though. Uh, if they were to put him into the protocol and go through the, the initial steps you outlined and then the return to play one, one, what are some of the mechanics of that? And two, how feasible is that to do within what is really four days? Because they're doing the, the game day evaluation on the Sunday, right? And then he has to be ready to play for Thursday day. How feasible is it to do a concussion evaluation in two days of, you know, non-game prep or four days if we're, if we're saying they get every minute up to up to kick off? I think where we're getting the two days, the four days, and then the outrage of he did return after four or five days, let's say he did go through the concussion protocol, um, that is up for debate and is highly debated kind of in the concussion and CTE research field. I think the two days is coming from they've given it two days to decide whether he had a concussion or not. Um, there's no rule that says we can't do that. But I think you do tend to try and diagnose a concussion or not a concussion within 24 hours. Sometimes you can have brief symptoms that may not carry over into the next day. When you hurt your head, your head will hurt for the next couple of hours. That doesn't mean we have a brain injury. So I think it is standard practice sometimes to give 24 hours. But I think what they've done there is tried to give 48 hours to have symptom resolution before saying, oh, he doesn't have a concussion. And that is not something that we should really be doing because you can have a resolution of some of the symptoms within that 48 hours, but he will still have had a concussion. Um, and he might still have some micro level brain damage there. So I think that's where the two day is coming from. The four day is feasible technically. Um, and that's where we get into the debate of should we be doing that four day? But when you get into the return to play phase, the whole point of the return to play is to 
ensure that he can, the athlete can do uh, physical activity without eliciting any symptoms. So what it breaks down to is phase one is just making sure we have no symptoms at rest. So we don't have any symptom provocation um, and they've been symptom free for 24 hours. So let's say we've had a concussion diagnosed 24 hours later, I'm feeling better. All right, let's start on to the next phase. The next phase we go into aerobic or cardio. So they'll do non-contact, very isolated treadmill running, lap running, cross trainer, anything like that to get the heart pumping to see what effect that has on symptoms. Next phase is doing non-contact sport. So they'll do any sort of sport drills that are non-contact. 24 hours goes through. We don't have any symptoms with that. We move on to the next phase, which is contact practice. Now it's important to highlight there, it has to be a practice. You cannot skip that practice element and go into a game. Once we've done a full practice, had no symptoms whatsoever, that's when we'll do another evaluation from the team physician, the athletic trainer, and the independent neurologist to decide whether they're cleared to return fully. That's when we can start talking about games. Can you technically do that in four days? Yes. Should we be doing that? Definitely not. Um, it, but that's where we start to get into the debate of, well, what is a good timeline? And I think a lot of people differ on their opinions of that. But as things stand with the protocol now, you can actually get cleared in four to five days. Now, we should say this once again, as for context, he wasn't in the protocol, so they didn't actually go through mm -hmm. these things. But you're saying mechanically, had they put him in there, there is a feasibility they could have. They could have got him uh, through the yes. protocol in time for Thursday Night Football. And Thursday Night Football as a general concept this is my words not rachel's is immoral uh, they shouldn't be playing four days after playing uh, on a sunday particularly in a game that was 109 degrees and they were all throwing up on the field because they, they had heat exhaustion and sunstroke um that's by the way um where do we can i just quickly ask you on there's been a ton of former players now they were on the broadcast they were obviously tweeting last night talking about this concept of removing it from the athlete one of the reasons that mike mcdaniel the head coach has said and again mike mcdaniel is not involved the coaching staff is not involved in whether or not the guy's put in the protocol but one of the reasons he's obviously the the guy's the the lead point for the media to ask questions one of his statements about this was that two was almost confused as to why people were asking about his head because he had said oh no it's my back and he had explained the injury to people on the sidelines during the bills game remember he went back into the game after stumbling against the bills where and so a whole bunch of nfl players have been tweeting about the fact that you've got to protect players from themselves thanking medical teams for in their career because when you have the concussion you get the cloudy brain you don't actually know all the time what's going on with you you don't you don't know if you stumbled and stuff like that that's that's part of the the trauma of having a tbi where do we come down on this protecting the player from himself he might not actually realize he suffered a brain injury well, first of all, I'd like to say that it's nice that we're finally being thanked instead of attacked after some of these incidences. Uh, we often are the medical staff attacked for following the protocols as they are right now. So I appreciate all of those athletes. Um, when answering your second question, um, how much do we take into account how the athlete is feeling versus those more what we call objective measures of what's going on? Do we need to be pulling or taking them off the off the field? Um, that is kind of still up for debate, and that is kind of a huge topic of debate within the research field as it stands. On, on one hand, they are an independent person. They are still a patient. They should still have autonomy over their own health care 
just as they should any other injury. Um, obviously, there is to be considered that it is a brain injury. They may not be fully aware of everything that's going on. There may be confusion. Confusion is one of the symptoms of concussion. So we have to kind of consider that. Um, but we also need to consider concussions as the injury they are. No two concussions are the same. So I don't think we really, unfortunately, have a perfect answer to that that question. Um, what I do know is that we need more research in that field. And the problem that I consistently have is the research just isn't good enough. The, the things that they are looking into right now aren't good enough. Some of the protocols and the research that is being carried out, the methods aren't good enough. We aren't getting answers to those questions because that is a really important question. And I don't have a good answer for you on that. When we get to the, the concept of him playing Thursday and then playing on the Sunday, and there's a debate about whether or not he should be in the protocol, which is kind of what that Sunday debate is. Did he have a concussion on the Sunday or not? Should he have gone back into the game? And if, if he did go back into the game and that was a separate solution, should they have then entered the protocol following when um, you know the game had ended and they did whatever they had to do? That gets into almost the analyzing from the sofa sacks kind of thing. Someone like me, a football analyst watching, you know, oh, I've seen this. every time I've seen this happen before, um, he appears to have a concussion or the, the player ends up being in the, in the protocol versus being on the field and actually treating the patient that you work with, the person you know, and there is at least the independent neurologist there on hand as well um, to give supposedly independent advice. But I would say when the NFL PA and the NFL announced they're going to have their own investigation, would it not stand to reason that you should remove the player from playing until you have established the results of that investigation? I don't think it's a bad thing to consider. And that goes on to kind of the, the big phrase of when in doubt set out principle um, that's often echoed in the concussion um, and CTE research world. Um, I am very curious to see and I hope for everyone's sake that they have really good documentation and notes for every decision that they made that day because he did have that balance and stability. He got up, he looked a little bit confused. He did fall over. Could that be back hip issues? Maybe. I mean, we have to remember that he does have a pretty significant history of hip injury. Is that something that we're not considering? Maybe, but this is why I don't like to speculate so much on the less obvious um, signs and symptoms. But again, I hope that they have some really good documentation to really back up every decision that they made, particularly in allowing him to return to the game. Had it been me, I probably would have at least taken him off for the game, given him that night to rest and then revisited the issue the next day. I think that probably would have been the safer route, but I'm really curious to see what comes out of it all. So on that returning to the game, you have a situation where you've got the team's training staff and you have the independent neurologist. He's unaffiliated with the team. He or she's unaffiliated with the team. They're a neurotrauma consultant. Um, they have to, it's like, is it a double tick rule? Is it just a, a group decision together? Is, do, you understand, do you know the, the function of how those kind of walls break down? But they, they at least have to be involved in clearing the player to return to the field, right? So it's not just the, the team on their own. So what I read actually on the NFL checklist, which is publicly available on the NFL's website, on the game day, the team physician has the final say on whether they return or not. 
the difference is if they go through the concussion protocol and they go through the return to play, the team physician will say, I believe this player is ready to return. And then the independent neurologist then gets final clearance. But that's only if the athlete had been diagnosed with a concussion. When it comes to the game day protocols, it says on the NFL's website that the team physician has the final say. So let's say then, let's play it out as though he had suffered some kind of head injury on the Sunday. Then he's playing four days later. As you said, you can feasibly clear a concussion protocol in that. But when you get the second one that is confirmed on the Thursday, what what are the dangers? I mean, it's clear to everyone what you know how how horrifying that is, and we saw the results in the field. But what are kind of the medical dangers of sustaining a second brain injury within four or five days? There's three things that should be considered um, when returning someone too early from a initial brain injury. So the first one is called second impact syndrome. So this can lead to immediate death. So you'll have brain swelling, brain herniation that causes so much pressure buildup that that can lead to death either immediately or a couple of hours later. You can also have similarly, it may not be as uh, severe enough to cause death, but it can cause severe brain impairment. So one of the famous cases that's really led on concussion protocols is Zach uh, Lestet. Apologies if I've gotten his last name wrong, but I do know his name is Zach. There's been a lot of laws created in his honor and he did suffer second impact syndrome and he has been left with quite severe brain impairment. So those are kind of the more immediate effects that we should be considering when returning someone too early from a concussion. But the second one is considering those long-term consequences when we start talking about CTE. Something that hasn't yet been established but is often talked about is, is there a link between sustaining multiple concussions and not giving enough time to heal between those concussions? Is that something that might lead to an increased risk in developing CTE or developing more severe CTE? That's not an answer that we can really establish yet, but it is absolutely something that is spoken about often. In terms of the second impact syndrome, is there any research on the length of time between you know, when one is considered the secondary impact, for instance, two went back into that game. The concern would be if you as a professional believed he had a concussion in that Bills game, then then the concern is if he has a second impact strike in that game alone. Then as you're saying that the top risk is just immediate death. It's it's that severe. Then we have the Thursday. Uh, a big part of this discussion, I believe, that will happen is the fact it was a Sunday to Thursday game rather than a Sunday to Sunday. Is there any distinction between it being that compressed a time frame, Sunday to Thursday, if he did have a concussion on the Sunday, as opposed to, to those extra couple of days? W- would it have made any kind of difference, or is that still too much of a shortened time frame for someone who has sustained a concussion? I think that's a million dollar question. Um, And once we have that answer, I think we'll have better concussion protocols overall. Um, I think research is kind of indicating that it takes about two weeks on average to have full symptom resolution. And one of the arguments that we're having is, does that mean that the brain has actually fully healed? There are a lot of individuals that believe just because we don't have symptoms anymore, it might take up to 28 days for an actual full recovery from a traumatic brain injury. So. I think what we're really considering is two weeks to a month um, is often the two things that are discussed, which absolutely blows four days out of the water. I do think even those extra couple days could help and could make a difference when we're talking about four days versus 14 days. 
Um, another thing the listeners will be interested in would be just understanding what the fencing response is um, and what that could mean. Obviously, it's one of the most horrifying parts for the layman or just the, 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 the public out there, not a professional, when they see twisted fingers or unusual arm angles. Can you explain to the audience just what that is and why that happens? So the fencing response is one of the most clear cut uh, symptoms of a concussion that we know it's kind of unarguable and that's why i think we're not having much of a debate as to whether he had a concussion now that's not speculation that's something we can see and we know that it's a response to a concussion that fencing response is a neurological response and it does indicate there's brain drama trauma excuse me to the brain stem so while there's a lot of kind of gray area symptoms that memory that balance did he fall over because he had a back injury did he fall over because he has a concussion when you have that fencing response, that's a uncontrollable physical response to trauma to the brain. So it it absolutely says he had a concussion that that night. Just quickly on the second impact part of that. So we know he had one last night and still the, the, the discussion is whether or not he had the first one or not. And does that then make it second impact? If you do have the first one, is there a shortened threshold to hit? As in, does it take a less impactful hit to then cause the second concussion? Or is it the same throughout? As in, if if it hasn't healed fully, like you said before, is there a lower barrier to entry to then sustain the second one, which could be what, which is that much more damaging? I don't think I can say that with certainty, but that is something that's kind of widely believed is if you've not fully healed from an injury, it is easier to re-aggravate that. And that goes for any injury, right? So if I have an ankle sprain that I return too early, it's obviously going to be a lot easier to sprain that ankle again when it's already damaged. The brain is a muscle, just like all of our other tendons and muscles. So I think that's something that is kind of widely accepted. Is there a lot of evidence to back that up? Maybe not yet. Um, But yeah, that is, it, it absolutely could have been elicited with an easier hit. So what now for Tua? We read last night that obviously he went to the hospital. They said he had movement of all his extremities. They discharged him from the hospital in Ohio and he flew back with the team to Miami last night. I end up, like any journalist fan, you end up down these these rabbit holes of Twitter, which is the worst place to, to do science. And I'm reading all these things about why you shouldn't be flying after you've had a concussion. Can you give us maybe just um, some bullet points on what kind of the next steps are for Tua? Well, I, I think... Being discharged from the hospital is is fair. Now we can talk about how he should have gotten home, but I do think it's fair that he was discharged from the hospital. We send them to the hospital for two reasons, to make sure that there's not any severe leading to that hemorrhaging and, you know, the the big time brain injury leading into the more severe brain injuries. So they can rule that out. The other thing is what we call C-spine. So ensuring that his cervical spine is healthy. There's no brain or, um, excuse me, um, skull fractures, anything like that. Concussions don't need to be managed in the hospital. So if we just, even if it's a severe concussion, we don't actually grade concussions, but let's say it is a severe concussion. He had that fencing response that doesn't need to be managed in the hospital. So I think it was absolutely fair for him to be discharged. Can we get into the conversation of whether he should have flown or not? Yes. But how else was he going to get home? He needs to get home at some point. So I think it's things that we try to avoid. It's a risk factor to be considered, but you know, guys got to get home somehow. And so what now in terms of recovery from him? I mean, I guess 
they have way more information than us, so they kind of do know if a, a there was, a, you know, if they were lying about the initial one, if maybe they themselves were a bit borderline on it, got talked around by the player, or the fact, you know, this is what comes into big time sports is the Dolphins are better than maybe they even expected at the start of the season. They had a chance to be four and zero, and it's a big Thursday night primetime game, and they're playing a really good team, so that's maybe why they thought they could do it, and they knew they would have, I think, the ten day lag after the Thursday game if we can just get ourselves through Thursday then we'll probably do you know double protocol from the Friday morning onwards for the 10 day rest that that kind of only they will know that so you know it's a horrifying situation if that was the calculation they they decided to make as a medical staff what is their what does the recovery process look for them now if they do know that it's a second impact one is it any different to if they are just now treating this as the, the initial concussion no, it's it's no different. So in theory, could he be released in four days? Yeah, he could. So I think that's what will be interesting is um, whether they do release him, whether they do play it safe because they have an extended period before their next game. I think this conversation would have been a lot more interesting had it had they had a game next week or or had to fit within that four or five, six, seven day. But they have 10 days, which gives them a little bit of buffer. I see them taking advantage of that because it's just not worth a bad PR. Um, but it'll be interesting to see if he does come back in that 10 day. I can't speculate on that. It depends on multiple factors. Is he exhibiting symptoms? Is he adequately reporting those symptoms? Um, are we getting enough information on some of the physical, more objective measures? It will be interesting, but I do see them taking advantage of that 10 day for sure. Now, is there a, heaven forbid, triple impact situation where if he did have the first one that's undiagnosed and he has the second one, they treat this as the first one. And we're saying he could play again in 10 days where you were saying before that maybe we should be looking at 14 days is kind of the, the current understanding of the full healing. 10 days is still not 14 days. And that would still be, you know, the worst of worst situations. Something happened the following Sunday. You're looking at three in what's that 15 days is there a, is there a triple impact thing do we does that ever even needed to be checked since we've had such like modern understanding of concussion i think triple impact would still just be secondary impact so it's still just another exposure to another brain injury before the injury was healed so we've got to consider the short-term consequences of releasing him too early um but i do think with each consecutive concussion that's not being given adequate amount of time to heal it takes a little bit longer to get back from that. Again, going back to your average ankle sprain, if we sprain it once, we go back too early, we sprain it again, it's gonna take a little bit longer to get that ankle happy, stable, strong enough to go back to football. Brain's gonna be the same way. So the, the more symptom, the more injury that we have, the longer it's gonna take to actually fully recover from that. How much does ego come into this now where there's a real human element here. I mean, it's the most human element is that everyone saw what happened. It's the most one of the most disturbing things we've seen in the football field. I think everyone feels pretty confident something happened in that that Sunday game. Now this medical staff is up against the wall because they are national TV news. If they held him out of next Sunday, it's almost a confession that they didn't get it right the first time around. Um, is that wrong? Is that is that just idiot outside talking head stuff? Is it that you evaluate each one? one-to-one -one and maybe they were correct on the first one and then now they are just taking it 
you know, if they're going to use the, the if in doubts out principle for the 10 day lag, you would have thought they would have been interested in using that for the, the four day one. I think people will definitely speculate about that, but I don't think it's an admission to anything if they take the 10 days. Like we said before, on average, it takes about 14 days to get full resolution of just the symptoms alone. Nonetheless, how long does it actually take for the micro level trauma to heal? So I think even if we looked at this independent, we took away that first initial hit, it would still be appropriate to take advantage of that 10 days. So I'm sure people will speculate on it, but I don't think it's an admission of guilt on their part for taking advantage of the 10 days. Um, what of the protocols moving forward? You wrote for the read optional. It was in Gridiron Magazine too about this situation with the NFL's protocol, which is a whole separate podcast we could go into about what is happening in the world of research and CT and concussion and some of that research being either fabricated or misleading and kind of the global concussion protocols and the parameters for protocols being set by research that was either um what, what should we use before the lawyers come yanking me away here from the microphone? There was um, there was maybe not done in the most appropriate of ways. Is that did I did I get that right? Maybe. Um, what is your general? You, you've always written from the mindset of the idealized version is this, the practical reality is this, because you've worked in locker rooms, you've worked with teams, and then you also do research on these issues. So you're always trying to thread the needle between what is the best science and what is feasible to pass, not just through the NFL. The NFL does not do this on its own. It's collectively bargained with the PA. The players also don't want to sit out half a season if they feel like they're okay after 10 days, right? That's always the, the dynamic of play here, although a lot of the, the research crowd would like to have the, the, the apex perfect protocol, right? What do you think we could see? Because this will inevitably and should probably spark a conversation about the NFL's own protocols, and they, they were probably going to have to make a change in the next 12 months anyway. What kind of can you see as a general outline for for what they could do moving forward? I mean, let's not pretend the NFL doesn't have a bad rep in this. They do. They have some bad history. But I also think some of that work has overshadowed some of the good things that they have done. Um, you know, I read a piece from it was like an occupational health standpoint about what the NFL should be doing and what these contact sports should be doing, to be honest. They were already doing a lot of those things. So we're shouting from the rooftops that we should be employing these things that the NFL is already doing. The NFL and the NCAA have been doing education for years. They've been doing it since I was working in the NCAA, and that was five, six, seven years ago. Um, they've been doing preseason screenings at both levels. Um, my big hang up is, and I think everyone's at fault for this, the research just isn't good enough. So we're really leaving the medical staff stuck in the corner. They don't really have a right or wrong. They can't make the best decisions because they don't have the appropriate information. So yes, that piece we talked about was how some of the bigger leagues are still getting involved in the research and how they're still kind of able to corrupt the research a little bit. Um, but we also have to look at some of the activist groups and some of the research that they are doing. Biomarker research by itself isn't going to be enough for an appropriate concussion identification. Concussions are too unique to each person for us to have perfect protocols. We cannot, you know, paint these protocols with, with one broad stroke. It is going to have to be individualized. We just need a better understanding. We need to be able to answer whether we have better, you know, concussion resolution in two weeks versus a month versus three months. We need to identify that and we need to to accept what that information is. Um, 
but I don't think a blanket 30 down stand down period is is justified either I don't think you know if if someone tried to go to Tom Brady and say you got to sit down for 30 days that is never going to go down well so we have to be realistic about what we're asking what that perfect concussion resolution is versus what's the best that we can do that's going to protect the players as much as we can but we have to protect the players health as well as their career so I, I, I just don't think enough research is heading in that direction in my opinion and if that was one thing i would change that is the one that i would change well tom brady has his concussion vitamins so there's, there's no reason <laughs> to ever be concerned about it obviously it <laughs> is so what kind of research you're talking about here because i remember when you're working on that piece there they do they do they like to make grand proclamations now, big sports leagues, that they're doing the research. That that alone, the PR win of sending a new uh, um, a PR hit out to the New York Times saying, look at us spending $5 million on research is all really what they're looking for. Then behind the scenes, they start to obfuscate stuff or they pay for research like we're doing $3 million to find out what goes on with jockeys. And you say to them, what does relation does that have to Miles Garrett rushing off the edge into basically running into a freight train? And they just blink. And that's that's me. Oh, we never see the results of the research. They do. They announce the new research is happening, and then when you ask for the results, they say, oh, "We'll get back to you on the results. Don't worry about the results." What kind of research should we be looking at? The, the big one, I think, for fans, and we've seen this with coaches too, is discussion of the things like the mouth guards. Is the what's that helmet called? They all went now. Is it the Halo helmet? I forget the name of that one. Things like that. That they, they are very image conscious now in the nfl of they want visceral things to show look what we're doing these players are wearing these hot air balloons around their head we've announced this thing about jockeys aren't we trying really hard are those the appropriate research paths what they really need to find out well we got to go back to the initial lawsuit outcome which is they had to dedicate a whole bunch of money to concussion and long-term concussion management and I just don't think they're doing that. And there's two reasons why. So the big studies, when we are looking at the jockeys and we are looking at what's going on in Australia and Australian league football, they're trying to identify whether we should be concerned about this at all. And I do think we want to know the answer to that. And that tends to be the research that you can find. Let's call it low level corruption. If you really want to be nice about it, um, it's being influenced and we know that. So I wrote about, um, one instance that we that's on the record and subsequently since then there's been another on the record instance of very similar behavior so we know that that's happening and that's not really new that's what was happening in the 2000s as well so some of the big answers that we want that research is being corrupted but on the flip side the research that they are carrying out I think is useless those helmets I think are useless they're going off of research they have one study in my to my understanding from 2017, that's not enough research to say that we should absolutely be using these. Is it enough to continue looking into them? Yeah, sure. But mouth guards and helmets are not going to protect the brain. They protect the skull, which is important, but it doesn't protect the brain. It might protect a little bit. It might be able to disperse some of the forces, but it's not going to have this like huge overall, we're going to prevent all concussions. So it's something to be considered, sure. Then on the flip side, we have this um, new surge towards pain management. So they're looking into cannabis for pain management long-term. Love it. I love that research, but that's not enough. We're not, we're giving away money 
or they say they're giving away money to these older players who are dealing with early onset dementia, are dealing with chronic headaches, are dealing with things that we know are to do with their previous you know, history of playing football. But we're just kind of throwing money at them. We're not actually giving them any answers. There's no one, to my knowledge, that is actually trying to give them any answers, any clear-cut answers to what they should be doing. So I want that done, obviously. Um, but I just want further answers on what is the best objective measures of concussion? What should we be doing to make, because it's the concussion management protocols aren't good enough. We know that four days is not good enough. What is my answer to that? I don't know because we don't have the research to know what is the best day. We need to know the answer to that. We need to have better, more objective you know, we should consider what the athlete is feeling, but there should be more objective measures to consider alongside that when we're making these decisions that are impacting people's life. And we're just not really doing that right now. And one of the points you made in that piece was having the NFLPA take on whether it's more autonomy, more authority, getting almost, I don't see more of the flack, but being held to just as high a standard as the league itself. A lot of the times when they announce this research, it's a joint partnership in league with the NFLPA, either because the NFLPA is going to, you know, help have players in the study or just they're co-signing it because, yeah, any research around concussion CTE is helpful to the Players Association. The players should have as much information as possible about playing the sport. But you've written that you would like them to try and look more into why you allow them to allocate part of this money towards jockeys. Why aren't we looking more at the, whether it's medical, active rehabilitation, which I know you've done research on, of trying to help your members. I mean, you're a union. These are your members helping them now. And you want that the athletes themselves to have more of an understanding on what is being conducted essentially in their name, right? It's, we're doing it now to help maybe you and guys in the future, and you should be having a say over, over where the, this these resources are allocated and what research we're committing to. I mean, I just think that the NFLPA right now is taking a bit of a supportive role and they should be a primary role. So I think they're supporting research efforts but that's just not good enough and we're finding out why. They have skin in the game more than anyone because their players are at risk. Either they're at risk of implementing protocols that are too much without enough evidence to support them and it's gonna affect them financially, it'll affect their career, but we need to consider their health as well. So we need to make sure that we are heading in the right direction. The research is heading in the right direction. The research is focusing on those big questions that we need answered in order to move this whole field forward. I just don't see anyone more perfectly positioned to ensure that that happens than the NFLPA. And I think the players need to get more vocal as well. They need to be in support of better management and identification protocols, but they need to remember what some of the consequences of that might be too. They are the only ones that can really stay in the middle everyone else has a bias on either side. So I just think that it's the most responsible thing for them to be pushing this narrative more than anyone. Uh, two more things before I let you go, because uh, this is another one where I just want my, my listeners to hear from someone expert in the field as opposed to what's going to happen on the online. So that's what we're trying to do here. Um, we wrote a piece, you helped me write a piece for The Garden, I think, what was that, three, four years ago, on some of the differences between rotational versus head-on impact. So always the famous things around concussion, and even if you were trying to do, I don't know what you would call activism journalism, which I've been I've uh, maybe guilty of in the past myself. You always use the shock absorbing 
bang play over the middle, the bang bang play that they've tried to take out the sport. Um, and there is a difference between those kind of over the middle of the field collisions of safety coming down, just wiping someone out helmet to helmet and the kind of rotational forces that can get put on someone, which is what has happened here to Tua in the last two days. as He's basically been spun around and then had his head slammed into the ground. Can you outline for people if there are any differences or what the differences are to know between the rotational kind of uh, head injury and the head on impact? Well, I think it is important and it relates a little bit to my previous comments about the helmets and the mouth guards. So with a concussion, there's two kinds of forces that can be applied to the brain. So there's basically head on and they move in a linear rotation. So they're just moving in a front and back line that can cause stretching of the neurons, which can still cause some damage, but that damage might be a little bit more localized and there might not be complete tearing of those neurons. So that's maybe an argument for the helmets might be a little bit more useful. If we can take that linear force and kind of disperse it along the helmet, that might be, you know, a pro. Where my concern becomes is what we call the rotational forces. And this is where those helmets and the mouth guards become less helpful. And it's really hard to just get only a force that's moving forward, backward. There's almost always some sort of rotational element. When you get that rotational element applied to the brain, that's when we get the most damage on the neurons because they end up tearing. And when those neurons tear, there's this whole cascade of events. But one of the most important ones that I want to highlight is it might release some of this tau protein is what we call it. Now, the tau protein is what we believe leads to CTE. CTE is what we call a tauopathy. It's a tau neurodegenerative condition, disease, symptom, whatever you want to call it. Um, but that's kind of the thing that I want to highlight is when we have those rotational forces, we get that tau released into the brain. That might be something that we need to start considering when we're trying to connect the dots between the more acute short-term concussion and that long-term CTE that we're all concerned about. So I think that's we really need to kind of to highlight that a little bit more. And then in general, just finishing with Tua specifically, some of the legal liabilities of what's happened here. That's one of the big things I think that's often misunderstood about the profession of being, uh, you know, involved with the team as a trainer is that there are all kinds of things that make you legally li liable beyond the team, personally liable um, as a medical professional beyond the team. Can you outline any of those and and kind of what maybe we could learn from this investigation that the NFLPA and NFL are conducting? Well, this is why I said earlier, I hope they have some really good notes. Um, concussion is the only injury that we have very specific, clear, defined and severe legal liabilities and punishments. And that goes back to the Zach laws that I spoke about earlier. There are laws in all 50 states outlining the need to have some sort of concussion protocol in place. And there are very clearly defined for each organization what those protocols are and that they need to be followed. There aren't really, if any, to my knowledge, other injuries that are that clearly defined and have that level of punishment. Can we say if someone mishandled a back injury and it led to further disability later on, is that something that we consider as malpractice? Absolutely, but there's a little bit more wiggle room. There's a little bit more gray area. There are very clearly defined protocols to be followed for concussion. And if they can't answer those questions, I do think they're going to be in for a, quite a bit of trouble. Now, what happens if you're not misfollowing a protocol because you never put someone into the protocol and you're telling some and you tell 
whatever investigative authority these people have called in. I don't know if they called an independent lawyers. I don't actually know how they're conducting the investigation. They're very private about that stuff. If you say, well, I was just treating a back injury because we thought he hurt his back. Is there any liability there? I think it will depend on what comes out with the investigation, what symptoms were present, and how did they justify that coming from a back injury versus a brain injury. That is going to be the thing that I'm looking for the most. So I can't really speculate on that too, too much, because I think that's where the key is going to lie, is why did that symptom, how was that linked not to a brain injury and it was decided it was from a back injury? If they can't answer that question and have notes where they clearly outlined that answer, it's going to be interesting to watch. And does the independent, to your knowledge, does the independent person keep their own set of notes? Would you just do that anyway, professionally in your phone, just in case exactly what has happened here has happened? Is that how it's supposed to function? So when the, the people come in and ask for everyone what happened, sh share us your notes, the, the independent person's opinion will probably hold some weight because one, it's a neurologist and two, they're obviously not associated with the team. Everyone should have their own notes. The independent neurologist should have their own notes. The athletic trainer should have their own notes and the team physician should have their own notes. If they don't, it's going to look quite suspicious. It is always best practice to keep your own notes and as detailed as possible. And lastly, on the dynamic from then, we go from the independent neurologist to the team medical staff. You told us earlier that the, the team physician has final sign-off on whether someone can return to the game and just the general concussion protocol itself. Then you get to the coaching staff, and they have so far, at least from what I've seen, it's early in the day here on Friday. Mike McDaniel, the new coach there, is a complete media darling. He does things differently. Some of his statements around the concussion itself are, are I'll say, peculiar um, he seems to think that a concussion is getting away with an injury as opposed to having an injury, which is that really old caveman type stuff from a guy who is really modern and new and like down with the kids is his entire vibe in life and as a coach. That's a little concerning. Where do we go from and where do we apportion any blame, if at all, from that dynamic of the staff going to the coaching staff? Is it as simple as Mike McDaniel saying publicly, I was told he was okay, so I'm taking it as okay. Does the coaching staff have any responsibility or liability for putting a player out there if they're also a little bit unsure of whether he should be out there or not? Or do they just follow the, the medical staff? I think that's a bit of a moral opinion. Um, you know, with the protocols themselves, coaches should not be involved at all. Uh, it should be down to the medical staff completely. They should have the final say. Obviously, we have some, um, you can get pressure from coaches if you have some not so great coaches to make wrong decisions. Um, people fear for their job safety a lot of times. So I think in taking the coaches out of that, we kind of address that a little bit. But on the flip side, coaches should be also advocating for their players. So if a coach doesn't feel comfortable putting their athlete back into the game, morally, they have an obligation to stand up and say that. But when it comes to the legal liabilities and stuff, I think the protocols kind of let them get away with it. Okay, then that'll do it for this edition of the, the Read Optional Podcast. A sad one to have to do, but also one I think is necessary when there's going to be a whole lot of confusion around this subject matter. Rachel Earn, thank you for doing this. We'll have you back on if there's uh, any updates on the story. Thanks again. Absolutely. Thank you so much again.